Man, please be seated. Many years ago, I was uh, called into a boardroom full of pastors. And uh, I didn't know quite why uh, when I got the initial call, but I had a hunch it wasn't good. <laughs> uh, about 15 minutes into the conversation, I learned why I came. I came because uh, they had some admonition. Uh, may I even say rebuke uh, for some concerns that they saw in my life. And as I sat there and my heart began to race, uh, my face began to go flush, what, what I felt was in my heart, I started to rise to my own defense and after about five minutes, I just let that inner defense that was going in my heart, I let that be known with my words. Have you ever been there in a situation like that? I don't mean uh, that you've been necessarily called before the board of elders. But have you ever been in a situation where a pastor, uh, your husband or wife, spouse, your uh, a, a, a parent, a teacher, a friend, they, they invite you to a conversation. And you know that that conversation is essentially a confrontation. It's, it's a rebuke um, for something that they see in your life. I think, I think you can all relate to that. I think you have all been there. But, what, but I, I want to know, in my life, as, as I've thought about this, and, and I find that in, in my life and in, in my heart, though Lord, yes, the Lord has grown me, I still have a, a tendency to want to wanna rise to my defense many times. I think that's natural. I think we all do that. What, why is it? Why is it so hard to accept criticism and critique and confrontation? Why is it? Why is confrontation and rebuke hard for us, even if it's done in love? Why do we, as one person says, want to be considered in the good class of sinners Why do we find comfort in pointing out other people's faults to make ourselves look better? Why do we exaggerate the truth, leaving out important details in order to spin the narrative to make ourselves look better than we really are? Well, these are all good questions. I think there are answers for them. But I can't give you the answer until I tell you how this relates to the book of Job. Because Job was right there. To remind you, Job had suffered a cataclysmic loss. 
absolutely life-devastating and life-ending in many, many ways. And on the heel of his great suffering, Job's three friends, if you want to call them friends, they sat down with him to have the talk. And from Job's perspective, the conversation went south really fast. His friends essentially argue that he is suffering because he sinned in a particular way and he's getting what he deserved. That's essentially what they argue. And, and like you and I are wont to do as I, as I began this morning, Job rises to his own defense. His closing arguments are contained in these chapters 29, 30, and 31. So I want you to open back there with me if you're not there already. Job 29, page 539, if you need that page number again. Job chapter 29, page 539, if you are borrowing a Bible from the pew. These chapters... These three chapters are not the only time Job defends himself. They're not the only time he argues for his innocence and his righteousness. Um, if, in fact, if you look with me, um, if you're there in 29, maybe it's on the same page or a page back in chapter 27. In, in my Bible, it has the title, Job Affirms His Righteousness. So really all throughout, he has been affirming his Righteousness is innocence, but in chapter 29 through 31, it really is his, his final arguments, the last time we hear him speak. So I want to look at Job's response to his friend's arguments. We've already looked at the friend's arguments in prior sermons and, and sort of what they said. And then we had an interlude sermon last time, chapter 28. It's kind of an interlude in the book. Um, now we want to get back to Job responding to his friends. So to begin with, as we look here in verse 29, Job opens with, with this argument uh, of, of, of seeking to justify himself by pointing to his right relationship, his good relationship that he once had with the Lord and that he had with others. That's what he's doing here in 29. As any believer would, Job is recalling, he's recalling his good relationship with God. And I want you to see how he describes his relationship with the Lord. Look with me at verse 2 of chapter 29. Chapter 29, verse 2. Oh, that I were in the months gone by, as in the days when God watched over me, when his lamp shone over my head, and by his light I walked through darkness. 
As I was in the prime of my days when the friendship of God was over my tent, when the Almighty was yet with me and my children were around me, when my steps were bathed in butter and the rock poured out for me streams of oil. This is all, it's all poetic language to say this. I had a good relationship with God. That's what I had with the Lord. At one point, at least, I had this. It was good. It was wonderful. And not only did Job have a right relationship, a good relationship with God, in the face he could say, I I had this good relationship with him. He had a good relationship with other people. To, To put it in the language of Luke, as we're going through the book of Luke, we could say Job loved others. He even loved his enemies. Look with me at what he says in 29, starting in verse 7. 29, verse 7. When I went out of the gate of the city, when I took my seat in the square, the young men saw me and hid themselves, and the old men arose and stood. The princes stopped talking and put their hands on their mouths The voice of the nobles was hushed, and their tongue stuck to their palate. For when the ear heard, it called me blessed. And when the eye saw, it gave witness of me. Because I delivered the poor who cried for help, and the orphan who had no helper. The blessing of the one ready to perish came upon me, and I made the widow's heart sing for joy. I put on righteousness, and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy, and I investigated the case which I did not know. I broke the jaws of the wicked and snatched the prey from his teeth. Then I thought, I shall die in my nest, and I shall multiply my days as the sand. My root is spread out to the waters, and dew lies all night on my branch. My glory is ever new with me, and my bow is renewed in my hand. We can stop there. Job, what this is saying is Job is not only a very powerful and wealthy man, Job is a generous man. He, he, he is not the, 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 the stereotype of what we might consider what a wealthy person is, right? We have this stereotype that wealthy people are uncaring, insensitive, and out of touch. This wasn't Job. He really did care about people as evidenced in these verses. So much so that one commentator points out that Job's care, his care for the poor, the fatherless, and the marginalized was a model for how Old Testament ethics were supposed to be. Job was a model for what the scripture called him to be. He was that model in Job's conscience the commentator says, in his conscience, to admit 
to do any good, to omit, excuse me, not admit, but to omit to do any good to his fellow human being of whatever rank or class would be a grievous offense to God. Again, in Job's conscience. Job was a good guy. That's what we're meant to to, to pick up here. That's what we're meant to understand. And yet, he suffered. Job doesn't doubt. Listen, Job doesn't doubt that the bad guys suffer. But Job is making the case that he is the good guy. He is innocent. He is righteous. And he doesn't deserve the suffering that has come upon him. That's chapter 29. Chapter 30 turns rather abruptly. And you can see this in verse 1. Look at it. Chapter 30, verse 1. But now... It's a strong contrast, but now those younger than I mock me. It reminds me that a person undergoing severe suffering can, can vacillate from, from extreme highs to extreme lows. And this was Job. 29 was the high, and now 30 is the low. It is the low point. In fact, chapter 30 is just another version of chapter 3. It's a lament. It's, it's, it's a lament of his suffering. But he does so, he does so interestingly in chapter 30. He laments his suffering with an eye to defend his own righteousness. So there's a bent he has to his pouring out the lament here. After much bitter words in chapter 30, and we're not going to read it all. We've already done that. He says, look at verse 24 of chapter 30. All these bitter words, he says, yet does not one in a heap of ruins stretch out his hand or in his disaster therefore cry out for help? Have not I wept for the one whose life is hard? Was not my soul grieved for the needy? Do you see the argument? Look at all I have done for others. I am innocent. I don't deserve this pain. I, I personally, me, I have pain just just reading about Job's pain. This man was, this man was miserable. What anguish of soul Job was in. Finally, Job has had enough. He has had enough, and we come to chapter 31, and Job gives his closing remarks. And I find chapter 31 so interesting because it takes on a pattern. If you read it, there's a pattern here. It's sort of hard to pick up, but there is a pattern. The pattern is this. It's four things. 
Job lists a sin, and then he gives the judgment for that sin, the punishment for that sin, and then, he, and then he gives a reason for the judgment, a reason for the judgment for that sin. And then, finally, he declares himself innocent of that sin. Like a smart, well-trained attorney, Job takes off all the gloves. And we don't have time to read all of this. But I want to give you the sins that he, that he lists and that he subsequently exonerates himself from. So here they are. There is, first of all, lust, particularly sexual lust. In chapter um, 31, this is chapter 31, verses 1 through 4. And then we see dishonesty in verses 5 through 8. He, he mentions adultery in verses 9 through 12. Oppression of the weak, of the helpless in verses 13 through 15. Uh, then he mentions stinginess. Now here's a guy who had a lot of money, but he wasn't stingy. Verses 16 through 23. Then in verse 24 and 25, he mentions greed or trust in wealth. He next mentions idolatry in verses 26 through 28. And then vindictiveness in 29 through 30. Then he mentions in verses 31 through 32 that, that, that he has um, shown hospitality or that he has not shown, um, he, he hasn't committed the sin of not showing hospitality and generosity. Is that sin? He lists. And then he mentions hypocrisy in verses 33 through 34. And finally, in 38 through 40, exploitation. So he mentions all of these sins in chapter 31, and he says, None of it. None of it. I have done none of these things. So listen to Job's final challenge in verse 35 of chapter 31. Look at it with me. Chapter 31, verse 35. Oh, that I had one to hear me. I desperately want to be heard and vindicated of my wrongdoing. Behold, here is my signature, as if he signed a legal document. Let the Almighty answer me, and the indictment which my adversary has written, surely I would carry it on my shoulder. I would bind it to myself like a crown. I would declare to him the number of my steps, like a prince I would approach him. Thus, after 18 chapters of speaking in this book, that's how much the book of Job devotes to the speaking of Job. After 18 chapters, Job ends his speech, and he's only going to say a few more words, just a few more words in the rest of the book. In these three chapters, what Job is doing is he's arguing his innocence. He has done nothing wrong 
Here is a man from Job's perspective that did nothing to deserve the suffering. But is Job's assessment right? And more importantly, while you're here today, what lesson does the Lord want us to glean from this ancient book, the book of Job? What, what wisdom lesson does he want us to glean? Well, let's think about this together. Okay, we got to take these chapters and really the whole story here and think about what's happening, what's happened. It seems, at least in one sense, Job was right to defend and declare his innocence. Certainly, Job was a sinner. We know that from the rest of the scripture. We're not saying he was not a sinner. But the book of Job gives us no inside scoop. It gives us no secret sin that he committed that is tied to his suffering that he underwent. In fact, the very beginning of the book, the narrator says that Job was blameless. And the very end of the book, God says that Job committed no wrong. Remember, however, we have to remember, this is only what we know from the narration of the book. This is what we know as we look on the outside looking in. As far as Job knew, he had to defend himself. And this is precisely what Job couldn't understand. He, he was ready to admit sin if he had sinned. But to him, he hadn't done anything wrong. You see, it felt like God was punishing him. God, Job says, if I have done something wrong, punish me. But I don't believe I have, so why am I suffering so much? I'm innocent. And in saying this, Job betrays that his theology of suffering is no better than his friends. It is still, it, his theology is still based upon retribution. That, that's just a fancy word for saying that, that if you do right, you will be blessed. And if you do wrong, you will be cursed. This sort of mindset is not unique to Job. It's not unique to his friends. It's not unique to the ancient Near East. This mindset is deeply ingrained in all of us. The way we commonly think is the good people get the good stuff and the bad people get the bad stuff. The lab test comes back positive and you think it's punishment. Your marriage 
goes south and you think God is getting back at you for your sinful choices so many years ago. Or consider this. Consider this. How do you, really, how do you think of the poor, the fatherless, and the marginalized? They've made their own bed. They need to sleep in it. Or, or we live in America. If they want to get ahead and get out of poverty, they are able to. Now, this is not any kind of political or social critique. My point is, is that in our own lives and in our culture, the good people get the good stuff and the bad people get the bad stuff. Now, now to clarify, I'm not saying that, that consequences are not built in and, and there are consequences for actions. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that not everything can be chalked up to a this for that schema, a this for that outlook on life. A while back, a uh, colleague of mine at my accounting job that I work for, firm I work for, uh, she was descending, descending uh, the stairs at her church. And she missed the last step, and she fractured her ankle in the process. Of course, she was on crutches, and she had a booty on. And as clients would come into the office, they would see her in crutches. And it was so interesting to hear what they would say to her. And, and I can't tell you how many said in, in sort of a half-joking way, but serious nonetheless, you must have upset God, or in some cases, the gods, because you injured your ankle at church of all places. That's, that's what they said. You, you, have, you have, we could say, bad karma. Had my coworker sinned to deserve a, fra a fractured ankle? This is exactly the mentality of Job's friends. They believe Job had sinned and upset God. And so he's suffering the consequences of his behavior. Job, in other words, was a bad actor. And here's the thing. Here's the thing that I find so interesting. Job didn't dispute their theology. He doesn't argue, no, you got bad theology, guys. This isn't right. No, what does he do? He seeks to defend himself of the wrongdoing. He accepts their premise. He accepts their theology. But he figures he needs to defend himself. In one sense, in one sense, we can say Job had not sinned in a specific way to merit the suffering. But listen, listen, in another sense, Job, Job was a sinner who needs salvation. 
Job was a sinner who needs justification. And this is why justification is so important, whether or not our suffering is the result of a specific sin or not. Job desperately wanted justification. And you know what? So do we. You see, as we seek to understand what is happening here and this really challenging enigma that Job finds himself in, he's accused of sin, but arguing for his righteousness, yet, yet really a sinner, we cannot truly understand any of this apart from what, li- what later revelation the New Testament calls the doctrine of justification. The doctrine of justification is the truth. It is the truth. Let me remind you this morning. It's the truth that you and I have broken God's righteous holy laws. We don't don't want to hear that. That's, that's, That's not what I want to hear. And I want to defend myself. You and I though we are guilty and we deserve condemnation for our sins. But because of God's great mercy and love, he sent Christ Jesus as an atonement for your sins. On the cross, on the Christ cross, Christ accomplished your salvation. He accomplished your justification. And so, you know, you know it is through turning from yourself and turning to Christ that your sins are wiped away. You become justified. That is, you are declared and defended as forgiven of all your sins, and you're given 100% righteousness in Christ. Christ gets all of your sin, and you get all of his righteousness. Your spiritual bank account goes from negative 1 billion to a positive 1 billion. This... This truth of justification is truly how Job could defend and declare his righteousness, his innocence. How how is that the case? What does Job have to do with the New Testament doctrine of justification? Well, I once heard an Old Testament professor say, that the Old Testament is, is really where the Bible is all at. The rest is just commentary. And, and if that's the case, the commentary on Job is undoubtedly Hebrews chapter 11. You don't have to turn there, but just listen to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, by faith, by faith, the men of old, 
like Job, gained approval. Did you hear that? Did you hear that? Were you distracted? By faith, the man of old, like Job, gained approval. And approval is just a word for righteousness, justification, innocence. So it is through simple faith. It is through faith that Job and you and I gain approval with God. Whatever limited revelation Job had, his trust in God was credited as righteousness. And in that sense, Job was indeed righteous. So what does this mean for you and me? What does this mean for you and me? I've, I've set this all up and I've tried to undercover what's happening in the book of Job by looking at the New Testament because we read the Bible backwards. What lesson can we learn from the book of Job on suffering, particularly as it relates to justification? Well, here it is, and I'll state it like this. In your suffering, that is in the trials and tribulations, the heartache and pain, keep your focus on the sufferer, Jesus Christ, who suffered for your justification. That's the lesson we learn. Why? Why do we keep our eyes on Christ Especially when we're suffering, because you know what happens when you suffer? You know what happens when suffering comes into our life? Suffering causes you and I to focus inward. That's what happens. We begin to focus inward. We question why. What did I do to deserve this? And when you truly look inside and you're honest, all you can find there is no good. There is no good you can find. You can only find guilt when you look inside. And therefore, looking inside, you know what, brothers and sisters? Looking inside, it will only lead you to the path of despair on one hand or self-righteousness on the other hand. That's what will happen. And that will compile your pain. It will compile the misery. But looking to Christ, who is your righteousness, this will give you the spiritual standing to endure the pain, to endure the suffering. And I use the word standing here deliberately because it is tied to a great New Testament text on justification. And I want you to see this. Please turn over there to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. This connection is so amazing to me in light of Job and his 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 desire, his need to justify himself. And in light of the fact that we as Christians have 
One who has become our justification, who has become our righteousness. Romans chapter 5, page 1129 if you need it, and look with me at verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, what results? We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through whom? Also, we have obtained an introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand and we exult in the hope of the glory of God. Now, notice the connection to suffering in verse 3. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulation. In our suffering, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. And on and on Paul goes. So what does justification have to do with suffering? A whole lot according to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5 verse 1 and following gives us, it, it, it details for us, the results of our justification. And what are those results? Number one, we have peace with God. But it's not only that. It's not only that. Justification, and here's the key, justification gives you a perspective on suffering that gives you hope. So much hope that you exult in, you rejoice in, you revel in your sufferings. It is the fact that we can look at ourselves in the mirror and know that Jesus has paid my debt. Yes, I still suffer. But I have the exalting hope of the glory of God. Listen, I don't know all the intricate details of all the suffering that you are going through right now. But here is what the Lord says to you today, friends. Listen. When you suffer in your heart and mind, don't look inside. Don't look inside. Look outside. Look outside of yourself to Christ. In the deep resources of your soul and heart, in your naked and bare conscience before your maker, look outward to Jesus Christ. Look At his finished work, look to him, to him alone for your justification and your defense in your suffering. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.